Uh, if you didn't receive some notes, uh, hold up your hand, and we'll try and get them to you, but I'll follow those fairly closely. <laughs> and I always wanted to say this, I see those hands. Uh, there was reference to Billy Graham before, so I thought I'd just sort of go there for just a moment. Uh, by the way, the, the, the work at the Cove is uh, what they're doing, following with what Billy Graham started is absolutely uh, fantastic if you ever get a chance to go there. Uh, second thing, just before we get started, is I don't know about you, I didn't know Ryan. I really like him. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm not, I can't sit down because I just had back surgery for more than about 20 minutes, and I can't stand still, but I can walk. So those of you that saw me pacing, uh, that was so I could hear the message and uh, not be in pain at the same time. And uh, the, the world that we're living in, it's really obvious changed dramatically. And I would just, uh, before I pause quickly and pray for me and for you, just think of this one thought, and this will help you begin to navigate. The world that you're living in today is far more like the first century than the last century. Let me say that again. The world that you're living in, the world that your kids are living in, the world that your grandkids are living in, the world that your friends, the kind of business that you're in, it's a lot more like being a Christian in the first century than the last century, which makes what was written in the first century more relevant than ever before, but it also makes what you think the way the world ought to work and how it's currently working radically different from that season where the culture in the United States and the West in general actually supported your beliefs rather than were in disagreement or even hostile to them. Does that make sense? So you gotta think differently. Lord, help us. We love our kids. This is a family camp. We love our grandkids. And Lord, as one that has grown kids, I mean kids in their 40s, still my kids. I still have influence. Um, I still have responsibility. It's different than before, but it's real. I ask that you'll fill me with your spirit, that you would give uh, every person here ears to hear what you want them to hear, and Lord, that you would be uh, not just honored in some vague, superficial way, but we would choose to specifically apply what you would show us because your promise is if we respond to the light that you give us, we get more. And Lord, your word of condemnation is if we do not respond to the light that you give us, even the light that we have will be taken away. Lord, we live in serious days, so I pray in Jesus' name for power and wisdom and for your spirit to have liberty. Amen. If you'll uh, take a quick look at your notes, um, you might think, oh my gosh, what are we going to talk about here? I want to begin our journey together uh, with a hypothetical uh, but morbid set of questions. So I just tell you on the front end. Question number one, it doesn't get more morbid than this. If you knew with absolute certainty that exactly on this day, 365 days from now, your heart would stop, your brainwaves stop, and you would be dead. You knew for sure. 
I mean, you could just, I mean, just like you could put it on the calendar, just like some of you are saying, next year, we're going to go to Mount Hermon. You would just say, next year, July 25th, 26th, whatever it is, I will be dead. You got, everybody got that down? You might jot that in your notes. That'll be very important. I'm teasing. In light of that, who are the top five people you would feel most responsible to prepare for your passing? You got 365 days to keep breathing, to think, to do whatever you want to do. Who are the top five people that you would say, hey, I'm going to die a year from now, so I'm, I'm guessing some of you are clicking off children, right? Some of you are going, hey, I got to go more than five, right? You have grandchildren. Some of you have some very close friends. Some of you have business partners. I don't know. Can you think? This isn't hypothetical, right? Who would be the top five people that you would say, a year from now, I'm going to be dead. I have to prepare them for their future welfare because I won't be here. Question number three. What would you want to pass on to them in the next 365 days to prepare them to promote their welfare and their future success after your passing? You can talk to them about anything. You can give them a book to read. You could meet with them every month. You could meet with them every week. You could meet with them every day. You could pass on your financial wisdom. You could uh, line them up for future education. What, what would you do? I mean, when, when today ends, you only got 364 more days. Next week, you only have seven less than that. What would you specifically want to pass on to those five or more people that you say they're the most important people in my life? What would it be? Final question. I said they're morbid. So I wanted to start with morbid, and now this is really morbid. If you died in the next 24 hours instead of one year from now, what would your greatest regrets be about what you didn't pass on? This time tomorrow at about 11.20 or so, Lord willing, you have a relationship with Jesus and you would pass from here to his presence. But you have about 23 hours and 50 minutes to think about all the things you wish you would have done. All the things you wish you would have said. All the, all the sit-down times of what really, really mattered. What would they be? I mean, this is, this is just us in here, okay? So don't, don't go, oh, that's an interesting introduction. I, I want you to think, what would they be? Like, what would you say? Like, you know, you knew. Like, we, we get about 22 hours into it, and you know, I only got two hours left. Oh, I wish I would have. Because it's really important. And I want to suggest that... Uh, Every single day, we're passing on who we are and what we value and what we possess to our kids, our grandkids, and people around us. Because more is caught than taught. And after pastoring for over 36 years and being in ministry for coming up on 40, I will tell you, for most Christians, it's sort of a haphazard, I hope they catch it, filled with good intentions about what you ought to do, what you should do, and you've thought about, and it's sort of a mixed salad bar, and some good stuff happens, and some stuff that doesn't. And for a few Christians, it's a highly intentional. It's a very strategic. It's very clear. 
and you know what really matters in your life and you know very clearly what matters to God and you have very high intentionality and you have a strategy that goes with that and you have a schedule that you follow because you know there's certain things that are more important than anything in the world. Unfortunately, most Christians, even at family camps like this, have spent far more time preparing how to transfer your wealth than you have your faith or your values. And all the research we know, especially if you happen to have a lot of it, when you pass on your wealth, it's a very, very small percentage of children or grandchildren that do very well with it. But you got an estate plan, you got a living trust, you've thought it through, you've met with lawyers, unless you're really young and you're thinking, I don't even know about that stuff because I don't have anything to pass on right now. <laughs> but what you have is even more important. You got time. There's some of us, I, I started doing this probably, I don't know, early on into COVID. I had a friend who, uh, I didn't know him very well, and in passing he said, you know, I started doing something a number of years ago, and he says, I've got this really huge barrel, and every week I... Uh, I have a, it's, it's not a huge, but it's a, it's a rock about this big. And I figured out if the Bible's true, right, three score and 70 or even 80. And so what I do is every time, every week, at the end of the week, I drop the rock in and then I have a number and I subtract seven days. It's called numbering your days. I thought to myself, because although if you're way out there and, and comfortable, which is really wonderful, with the first three rows empty, don't, it's not like it makes me feel all that bad. More than mildly bad, but it's okay. You can stay out there. But the, I look really young from out there, but if you're in here, uh, you realize that guy. And so I started uh, writing in my journal. I, I hope, I don't know what I'll get. I mean, I know what the actuary tables say, but I just thought from Scripture, if I get 70 years, I started writing out. It's really interesting. You got to try this. Do, do the math on It's crazy. Like 1,524 days left. Next day, 1,523 days left. And then I got into 1,100 <laughs> something. And, and you know, I can be like you and I can unconsciously think God will give me more than 70. But the scripture says it's pretty cool if you get 70. The Apostle Paul, when thinking about all of these questions, said to his young son in the faith, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men, men and women, who in turn can teach others also. It's on the top of your notes. 2 Timothy 2, what's the verse? Got a pretty vibrant vocal group here on the right side, but <laughs> 2 Timothy 2... Okay, that's good. Just, just want to make sure that you're not having sugar overload from those donuts. Now, think of that. He didn't say, hey, Timothy, teach him the strategy about how to grow a church. Teach him about... The things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust. That, that, that word doesn't mean you just tell them. You entrust them. And the only way you entrust something is they see it in your life. They hear it from your words. They observe it by how you live. And then you intentionally 
give it to them, then you test them to see if they got what you've given, and then you have them live it out on their own, and when they do it well, you praise them, praise them, praise them, and when they don't do it so well, you put your arm around them, and you help them see how, gosh, that, that behavior, that thinking, that this, that that, is going to be really antiproductive for everything in life. And so what I want to do is pass on to you what I think are the five most important things that you could ever pass on, and you'll notice in your notes what will you leave your children and grandchildren? Because whatever you leave, it will make them or break them. The key to victory prior to any race, you can write this word down because some of you, my wife's not here to poke me, um, is the key to any is preparation. Some of you have a lot of time to prepare. Some of you don't have 365 days. The key to victory in any race is execution. It's not enough to know these are the things that matter and we sit around the table now and then. No, no, it's execution. This matters. This is how I'm going to do it. This is when I'm going to do it. This is when I meet the grandkids. This is when I write the grandkids. This is what we say around the table. This is very specific things I need to talk to about my adult children. Well, then talk to them. The five core values will pass on to the next generation that I believe are most important. I'll give you four of them, but since we only have four sessions and I have five, the last time I'll give you the last one so you can download it if you'd like it. And this is one you need to get. Radical sustaining change always begins with our thinking, not our behavior. Our thinking, not our behavior. This is probably a lot more for uh, you younger parents or when the, some of you that are older discipling some younger people. When you're a parent, man, you're so into how your kids behave and, and are they embarrassing me or are they saying the right things or then they hit the preteens and the teen years and oh my gosh, you, you'd think the only thing a Christian parent is, please don't get pregnant, please don't get on drugs or alcohol and what's, what's the last one? And oh, don't go to jail. It's all about their morality and their behavior and by the way, go to church, go to church, go to church, go to church, go to youth group. Here's what I can tell you is that that focus, 68% of your kids in the current Christian environment, after they leave you, will leave the faith in evangelical Bible-teaching churches like the ones I have pastored. Because that's not where the focus is. That's a parenting out of fear instead of a parenting out of objectives. The most important thing for your kids is their worldview and how they think and the ability to discern and them to have their own values. Their values, guess what? That will produce a good morality. That will produce all the good things. But you can, you can focus on all those other externals and have kids that have been to youth group, sent to a Christian college, and for some of you are a little bit shocked, why are they living with their girlfriend now? Or why have they told you that their sexual orientation has changed? Or why do you not just recognize how in the world we came this, we sat around the table, they went to these schools, we did this, we did this. You got to understand, they're living in a culture and they're made to feel like fools when they got into a college. And you need to understand in many Christian colleges, bellwether Christian colleges, at, at, at very high levels, doctrines core to the faith that are historic and orthodoxy are shifting and waning and moving. And if you think that you can export or sort of uh, say, 
you know, the school or the church or some college is going to disciple your kids, let me just say, as the kids would say, you're on drugs. And you're on a drug of good intention and high hopes. So let me tell you the number one thing in light of where we're living in our world that you need to teach your kids is teach them to suffer well. Sounds odd, doesn't it? Teach them to suffer well. Um, I don't know if you have thought recently, but there's a theology in the Bible of suffering. And it's almost at the opposite continuum of the American culture and how most grandparents and parents... If I ask most parents, what are your hopes for your child? What do you really, I mean, you know, what are they going to major in? Or what kind of life do you want them to have? And, here, here, and it's so syrupy and so sincere. I just want them to be. You make your goal to help your kids or grandkids to be happy. And they may be very happy short term. And their life could end up to be a train wreck. God says there's one thing that kids need to learn. Children, obey your parents. Parents, you only have one objective. It's not what school they get into. It's not how educated they are. God's will for your children is that they become more and more progressively like Jesus. It's all about their character. It's all about their faith. It's all about their values. What you find is when they follow those things, the byproduct is usually a number of things that are really good. But what I can tell you is 100% of your kids are going to suffer, and they're going to suffer more than most of you did because they're growing up in a different world. They're going to be bullied for their faith. If they're outspoken, they're going to be persecuted for their faith. They're going to be told that they don't fit in, that they're anti-intellectual, that they actually are haters and so you need to teach him to suffer well. Let me give you a theology of suffering and then some practical ways to do it. First of all, theology of suffering, life is hard, but God is good. And jot down uh, Psalm 8411. It's my God is good verse. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. Here's what your kids need to learn. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. See, they're living in a world of FOMO. Oh, you know, they're on their phone, and I'm going to miss out on this. I'm going to, oh, someone texted me. i got to get right back to them, get them a like. And uh, you know how they learn part of that? Oh, uh, that's right, watching you. You can't walk in the grocery store without your phone. Supper table, you're down like this. Let's have a family and go out to eat, and everyone's on their phone. By the way, everything I'm going to talk about you can't impart what you don't possess. You, you can tell them all the things that I'm going to tell you, and if you do not model it, right? In graduate work, psychology. Why I majored in that, I'm not sure. I thought I was going to be a major college basketball coach, so I majored in sports psychology, took all these courses. But there's a guy named Bandura who did all this study about how kids or people are, it's called socialization. It's, it's how we learn and develop our values. And he became very famous, all these studies. Guess what? The number one way people's lives are shaped is called modeling. Actually, Bandura could have saved himself a lot of time if he'd gone to Luke chapter 6, verse 40, where Jesus said, when a disciple's fully trained, he'll be just like his teacher. Here, here's the deal. Parents, grandparents, 
You have to be what you want your children and grandchildren to become. There's no cheating. It's not like, well, I watch these kind of movies, but this is here. You know, I do this, but they do that. Guess what? They catch all that stuff. Second, life is unjust, but God is sovereign. Jot down Romans 8, 28. You all know it, right? God really is in control. Everything that comes into your kid's life or your life or your grandkid's life, he either allows or decrees And it comes from a good God. And not just a good God, but an all-wise God. When they're going through things that are so difficult and so painful, or you are and you don't understand them, if there's a kinder or gentler or better way for God to give you his very best, you'd be experiencing that. See, part of what your kids is, what they've not gotten is rooted in Scripture and theology. The wisdom of God, classic definition, God gives about the brings about the best possible results for the most possible people by the best possible means for the longest possible time. And when you believe that and when you're living as best you know in God's will, when tragedy and difficulty and COVID and job loss and bullying, an all-wise God is going to use that to what? To shape, to mold, to grow. As I said earlier, I had back surgery and it was like, you know, Teresa and I just had to get away. My son said, well, you can't drive up, you know, to Tahoe like you like to, so you should go to Napa. Well, we're not like big wine connoisseurs, and I couldn't tell you a Merlot from a Zinfandel, but I said, okay, great. So we went up there and, you know, did the little tours and, you know, learned about this guy that would beat on all of his, you know, all of his vines and how this, this, is, this is really hard ground and it's clay, And it's really good. Well, why? Because the water doesn't seep in. It forces the roots to go down. And this guy would beat on all of his vines so they'd be resilient. Most of us have tried to protect our kids from difficulty and pain and want them to have the very best. And by the way, and, and please hear, out of a good heart, right? I don't want them to go through what I went through. Because see, what I went through is what developed my character helped me to realize life wasn't about me, made me very dependent on God. And in my desperation, when I didn't even want to have anything to do with him, I turned to him because of all of my challenges. Heaven forbid my children have to go through that. (laughs) You know, when you get older, you get a little more sarcastic. (laughs) But sometimes laughing about it is an easier way to digest it when what you realize, we're all good at this, aren't we? Man, we've said so yes to our kids. We've lived in such affluence. You know, you got 10-year-olds are thinking, hey, how come I got to have this old phone? (laughs) Right? We got 16-year-olds are picking out the kind of car they want versus, here's a little plan. Why don't you work? And I don't know how long it'll take, but I'll pay half on a used car somewhere somehow if you save the other half. Believe me, they drive it differently. I, I find parents often are struggling or grandparents and, and I'll ask them like simple questions like just, just a thought, like who pays for the gas? Who pays for the insurance? Who pays for the car? Because what they told me is I can't do anything with my son. They're just wild, they're crazy, they're out of control. I said, who pays for their phone? So you have unbelievable control. What we don't have in our world is parents with a lot of courage. See, love is not being nice. Love is giving another person what they need the most 
when they deserve it the least at great personal cost. And some of the greatest personal cost a grandparent or a parent will ever have is when you do what's best for your child and they slam the door and say, I hate you, and go to their room. And you have to either look down deep, look up, or if you happen to be married, look at your mate and say something that you both believe that's very painful. Well, I'd rather have him hate him now, but he'll love us in 10 years. And the fact of the matter, it's true. So let's get back to our theology. The Old Testament roots, uh, Genesis 37 through 50, it talks about, can you help me? Oh my gosh, people, you're at family camp, the Bible. (laughs) Dave, what are we doing here? Mike, it's the story of Joseph, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Genesis 1 and 2, creation, all right? Noah, like, you know, the flood. You know, then you choose Abraham, and we get all his kids and all their dysfunction that gives us all hope. You get to chapter 37, Joseph, from 37 to 50, the whole book is about Joseph. Why? Some of you that are in math, there's 50 chapters in Genesis. 13 of the 50 chapters are about one person, Joseph. What's, what's the percentage? About 30%. Yeah, I think, I think it's actually 26 point something or maybe 27. But almost a third of the book that tells us everything about what God wants to say is about one man. Why? Because the story of Joseph is how a good God in the midst of a fallen world works out his will in the midst of a faithful servant, in the midst of great adversity. And so he gets rejected by his family. Anybody ever had that happen to you? He gets lied about. He gets falsely accused. He gets forgotten. And then he gets exalted. And then something happens in the core of his character so that chapter 50, verse 20, is the principle of all 13 chapters. And he turns to his brothers, who now that dad is dead, assume because it would be the culture, he's going to kill us now. And Joseph, I can just see him shaking his head, as for you, to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good, to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Now, you don't get off the hook for lying about me, forgetting me, trying to get me killed. And you know what? Potiphar's wife doesn't get off the hook for lying about me and saying I was raped. All those were the evil of the world. A good God who is sovereign will weave the most difficult, painful, sinful things done to you. And by the way, this guy wasn't innocent, right? He was an arrogant little guy. Hey, did you hear about the dreams? Everyone's going to bow down to me, right? God even took his own arrogance, but he wove all that together, and the theme in those 13 chapters is the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, and what you saw in every situation is he used his administrative gifts to benefit other people, and you don't hear him say, why me? This isn't fair. Why me? This needs to be the greatest bedtime story when your kids are little. Joseph, 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 Joseph. And then when they get older, you need to teach them from the New Testament. When Peter wanted to help the first century Christians under Nero at the time, he said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 to 23, for you've been called for this purpose. Now, you ever wonder what God's will is? It doesn't get much clearer than an introduction like that. You have been called for this purpose. What is it? 
since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. I mean, you can give me a lot of stuff, but it sounds a lot like we're called to a purpose, and part of the purpose is suffering, and Jesus suffered in a way that we're to follow, and we're actually to suffer the way he suffered. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile. And in turn, while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept trusting himself to him who judges righteously. He would say just before that, servants, be submissive to your masters in all respects, not only to those who are good, supervisors in our day, bosses, but also to those that are unreasonable. The word means perverse. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. In other words, your kids are gonna get a raw deal. Your grandkids are gonna get a raw deal. Some of you are getting a raw deal. And your kids and your grandkids are watching how you respond to the unfair, unjust, raw deal that you are currently going through. And they hear the conversations, or they're watching what you post, they're hearing what you say. They're watching your body language. So how do you respond? For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But when you do what is right and suffer for it, and you hupomeno, patiently endure it. In other words, hold up under it. This finds favor with God. And then we get the introduction, for you were called for this purpose. Well, what's the purpose now? The purpose is to hold up with a great attitude to unjust suffering, just as Jesus did. Uh, in your notes, it says application. And so in my notes, please, this will not be work for you, but in my notes, my notes say, I, Chip Ingram, commit to grow through my present suffering. I would encourage you to write your name. And now what I'd like to do is uh, wrap up our time with some real specific ways to help your kids and grandkids do that. How do you grow through suffering? Number one, teach them to face it, to identify what they are, keyword concerned about. Help them think about it. Help them talk about it. Help them write it down. I mean, <laughs> what, what are we reading? Our kids are overwhelmed with anxiety and they have good reason to. They have fear, they have insecurities, they're being bullied, they have expectations, real and imagined. Ask good questions. Sit down with your kids and don't just assume everything's all right and heaven forbid, don't let them retreat into this thing. There's nothing but a bunch of junk where they compare themselves with other people. The higher the time they have on social media, the higher the anxiety. Suicide rates among teenage girls 14 to 17 is up like some ridiculous amount. All, all they see is other people's perfect lives compared to theirs that isn't. You need to ask them questions, sit down. Who's your best friend? What's your biggest challenge? What makes you feel sad right now? 
I sense you might be angry. Um, what do you wish could change? What, what right now makes you feel afraid? And by the way, you, you know, here's the initial response you're going to get. And by the way, you cannot get this all the way back there. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, if you think I'm trying to shame you to come down into here, you could be right. But here's what you'll get when you start asking some of these questions. No, brother. And the rolling eyes. But you lay across the bed. And, and by the way, this is why life can't be fast. They don't share these things, you know, traveling from here to here to here to here to here to here. All those things you're doing so they stay happy and their life works out right. So they make the traveling team and they finally get a lacrosse scholarship, which is really exciting because it's about $2,000 a year, and you've paid about $25,000 with the last five years <laughs> to help them get that. But, but, but hey, don't, you know, don't get me going. Concern. Moving on, moving on. Lacrosse is a wonderful sport, as, hey, it's true of all the others as well. Uh, second, pray honestly about it. Don't tell them it's, don't, this is not a good line. It's going to be okay. No, it's not. It's not, okay? Stop it. It's not going to be okay. It's going to be really hard, and God will be with you. It's going to be really hard, but he's good, and he's for you. It's going to be really hard, and I won't leave you. It's going to be really hard. That, that means you need some friends that aren't going to treat you like this the moment you're not in, and you're not cool. It's, gonna not, it's not going to be okay. It's not going to be easy. You can't just keep, you know, when they're little, it doesn't matter what happens. You can take them out for ice cream. When they get older, you tend to buy them stuff or take them places. I got news. The happiest kids in the world are not those that got to go to Disney World nine times. Happiest kids in the world have had parents and grandparents that had time at a leisurely pace that understood them and listened to them and hung out with them. Third is... Uh, Help them share where they're suffering with someone they trust. It doesn't matter how wonderful you are. They may never open up to someone other than maybe their grandparent or a mentor or a peer or a pastor. You might jot down the Proverbs 13.20. This was a big one. He who dwells with wise men will be wise, but the companion of a fool will suffer, will suffer harm. I mean, other than what are they thinking and what are you letting them put into their mind, the second question is, who are their friends? Because you line up four of your friends and you give me 15 minutes to interview their top four friends, I will predict their future with about 99% accuracy. They will become like who they hang out with. And so that's why they hang out more at your house than any place else. And that's why it's okay to say, you know what, I'm sorry, honey, Julie is off, Okay. She's off your social media. You can't hang with Julie. She's not coming to the house, and you're not going to her house. And even before you say it, yes, I'm the worst parent in the whole world. So if you need to go cry, go cry. But we're not doing this. Because I'll tell you what, if Julie is doing this stuff, and she's the popular person, and she's your daughter's best friend or your granddaughter's friend, amen. That's exactly what's going to happen. Hey, you're good. You're good. Out of the mouth of babes. That was, that was God speaking. Yes. Fourth is help them align specific scripture with their specific situation. Um, this is why you have to be, you need to be a word-centered 
family and a word-centered person. That's different than a I go to church-centered family, or we try to be nice family, or I believe in Jesus' family, or I really love God, but I'm not in the scriptures. You need to be able to say, when a negative uh, circumstance come into their life, you need to open, jot this down to James chapter one, verses two to four. And that will explain how to deal with negative circumstances. We all have them. Uh, second, when they have uh, opposition that just is wild and crazy and they don't understand, it's unwarranted, you need to teach them about spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through about uh, 22. Uh, when uh, they're make some bad choices, right? Sometimes our life isn't good because we do really stupid, even sinful things. You need to open up to Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8, and they get to learn that, you know, here's the consequences of when we make choices. I still love you, and guess what? Don't bail them out. Words don't change people. Consequences where you say, I'm on your team, and I love you, and I'm so sorry you don't get to go to the prom which I sold to one of my kids, or I'm so sorry that you, even though you just made the first team, you're going to be grounded for two days because we agreed and we have a contract and you said, I'll be grounded for two days when I have this behavior and you had this behavior. I'm your father. I love you, son. I feel so bad that you're going to miss practice and miss your... And I did both of those. And I was the worst parent in the whole world. Except my kids learned some things like... A, dad means what he says, and B, my decisions have consequences. I would much rather them miss a prom or miss first team than make decisions 10 years later that cost them a marriage, a job, or their future. Um, third is when they're persecuted, you give them 2 Timothy 3, verses 12. All those who desire to live a godly life, here's a promise, not one we claim often, will be persecuted. And then finally, when just things are challenging and who knows why, uh, Hebrews um, 12 verse 11 is character development. And you might add Romans chapter five verses one to five. It's all through scripture. God is going to use difficult, challenging times of stuff that comes against us. It can come from the enemy. It can be our choices. It can be external. But God's going to take all those things and we can, like the Apostle Paul say, we can rejoice in our suffering knowing it produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and hope will never disappoint. I mean, if your kids and grandkids have hope that's not in a job, not in a mate, not in being pretty, not in likes, hope that never disappoints because the love of God is poured out in their lives. That will sustain them forever. If I had 365 days, those are the things that I would be sharing with my kids. The life message is very simple. Suffering is normal. Everyone will experience it. It will either make them or break them. So help them learn to suffer well. Don't let them fall into this unrealistic expectation how could God, if he really loves me, let me lose my boyfriend? How could God, if he really loves me, let me break my arm and I lose my scholarship? How could God, if he really loves me, cause grandma to die of COVID? How could God, if he really loves me, wrong paradigm, wrong lens. Teach them the sovereign good God who is all wise allows suffering, not because he orchestrates, but it's a fallen world. And in that fallen world, this is how we respond. 
And the last words he gave us to his disciples that sustained them was not, it's going to be great. It was, in the world you have tribulation. That's called problems, struggles, pain, difficulty. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And the final, final words they got out of his resurrected body was, here's the mission. You get your kids focused on the mission. This is what we're called to do. It's not to be happy. It's to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and your neighbor like yourself. And it's to take the message of the gospel to every breathing human being on the face of the earth. And when your kids and grandkids catch that, then they'll remember, and I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Let's bow our heads. These are strange words in an American culture that we've all been baptized into of be happy, get more, be successful. And God, there's, there's much of that that's uh, served you and your kingdom well, but our world's changed. Help us first not to whine or complain or deny or blame. Help us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of your might. And then help us to pass this on to our children and our grandchildren by how we live, by how we react, by what we say, and with strategic intentionality with each one of them in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.